This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What are your recollections of your no-hitter? I think the best way to describe it, it was the best, worst, ugliest, <laughs> prettiest games in my career. Welcome to A's Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Chronicle beat writer Susan Slusser, and today Edwin Jackson joins us to talk about his fascinating career, which includes 13 stops with Major League teams, most recently a terrific debut with the A's. Then bench coach Ryan Christensen talks about his interest in calligraphy and design, as well as, as his first year in his new position. And finally on Slus Plus, David Feldman and I break down Oakland's first 81 games. Welcome to the A's Plus podcast. Our guest today is brand new Oakland A's starter Edwin Jackson, who I think everyone at this point knows is now playing for his 13th team in his 15th season in the major leagues. Uh, Edwin, first of all, tell us what your first day was like on Monday in Detroit, coming in and starting for the A's, and a a very nice outing, I might add. Thank you. Um, I mean, coming in the first day, it's always nice to get things started on a positive note. Um, I'm sure everyone knows what I'm capable of doing on the field, but to actually come out and, you know, get adjusted and, and gel in with the team like I was able to do, it definitely helps when it helps get everything jump started when you can come out and you can get everything started in a, in a good manner. Uh, you've obviously played with a number of teams and you have played with probably some of the guys in the A's clubhouse. I know you'd f- faced Jonathan Lucroy a lot. He said he was pretty familiar with your stuff. Do you think that helped that Lucroy kind of knew your stuff from having faced you? Well, as good as he hit me, I would hope so. Um, <laughs> he, he pretty much owns me. So calling my game, um, it probably wasn't too hard for him. I faced him numerous times, though, and he knows everything that I have. He knows what I'm able to do and not able to do. So for him to control the game, you know, um, I'm sure that helped, helped him you know, as Ben is facing me, um, you know, he can familiarize himself with what I have, and, you know, that helps both of us. Was that kind of fun, throwing to him instead of against him? That's the first thing I told him. Finally, I don't have to face him. I can throw to him. You know, we finally teammates, but we kind of laughed and joked about it. But, you know, it's one of those things. Pitchers know, they know who owned him, and I know his numbers. I don't know what they are exactly, but I know they're pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go look now. I, think, I know you've got me, you got me wondering. I know at least has three home runs all against me. <laughs> so he has pretty good numbers against me. Now, who did you know in the A's clubhouse? So when you when you walked in, who were you able to kind of immediately hi, say say hi to? Um, I know I know a handful of people just from being around baseball, but uh, I've played with Bookter. Um, I know some of the coaches, half of the coaching staff I've played with. You know, um, in different, different whether it's winter ball or whether it's with different teams. But um, it's not too many clubhouses that I can walk in that I don't know at least one person in the clubhouse. Now, you uh, were with Washington earlier in the year in the minor leagues, and you opted out of your deal, and then you signed with the A's. Was there uh, a, something in particular about the A's that you thought this might be a good opportunity? Why, why did you decide to do that? 
Um, first of all, I mean, I know what this team has. Um, I know the potential that this team has, even if it's a tough division. You know, we're playing against Houston and Seattle and Anaheim and, you know, but I know, you know, coming in and being able to help this, help improve this pitching staff um, is big for them. I know they had some, some key injuries to the pitching staff. Um, some of the guys that they had to start the season kind of went down on the shelf. So I know it was imperative for them to want some help on the pitching side and I figure why not, you know, I figure I have something to bring to the table and I can I can kind of mesh in and kind of help the pitching staff. I mean, they have the top three guys who, who've been pitching very well and I don't have to come in and try to be an ace. I just want to come in and help, you know, eat up some innings and help bring some value to the back end of the rotation. That's a pretty nice position to be in. And you're also one of the older players, more veteran players, obviously a very young team. Do you like that kind of role to be a little bit of a, a veteran guy and be somebody that maybe young pitchers can, can go to or look at? I definitely don't mind it at this point in my career. I'm kind of used to it. Um, the last few teams that I've been to, I've been one of the older guys. Um, I've definitely been through a lot. You know, I've been through the ups and downs. I've been from the worst to the best in baseball and everywhere in between. So it's in that aspect, I have a lot. I have a lot of value to bring as far as information, um, how to handle different situations and, you know, how to, you know, be your best in hostile situations where you're not necessarily feeling great in or you don't necessarily have your best stuff. So, I mean, I'm a quiet leader. I'm not one that's going to be outspoken and try to make myself be known. But if someone comes up to me or I see something, you know, that I can have somebody with in a conversation, um, I'm, I'm definitely willing to do so. But also, I feel like the more I help someone, the more I, I keep it fresh to myself as well. So it's kind of like you're teaching, plus you're reminding yourself about the basic things in baseball that we all need, you know, to succeed. You talk about some of the real highs of the game. You've, you've experienced a couple of, like, the absolute pinnacles. You threw a, a no-hitter. In fact, your, your game on Monday was the eighth anniversary of your no-hitter. What, what are your recollections of your no-hitter? Because it was one of the more unusual ones I think anybody's ever going to see. I think the best way to describe it, it was the best, worst, ugliest, <laughs> prettiest games in my career. Um, it was, it was all-in-one. It was an all-in-one type game. Um, you know, it went from the bullpen warming up all game to – the um, umpires asking coaches why am I still in the game and then they look up and be like oh he has a no hitter so I think the walks definitely kind of took everybody's mind away from the fact that I was throwing a no hitter at mine as well so it was, it was it was a lot of funny stories from that game well, what inning did you realize that you hadn't given up a hit especially with having walked some guys I think it came in after the sixth inning after the sixth inning because um, AJ Hinch you know, he called me to the to the dugout, and I mean to the bottom of the dugout, and he was like, you know, we have a we have a little situation, AJ. And I was like, AJ, I'm not one to argue with managers. I'm not one to argue with decisions on coming out the game, but I'm probably I'm not coming out this game until I give up a hit or a home run, whichever comes first. And he, we kind of left it at that. And I think I was fortunate enough to have a young manager because I played with a lot of managers after that. Who, who told me straight up that they would have pulled me out of the game. No chance I would have finished the game. How many pitches did you wind up throwing? 149, something like that? 149. 149. How were you feeling the next day? I felt great. I was younger. You know, <laughs> I was younger then. I felt like my body could bounce back. Uh, I don't know how I would handle that now. Mentally, I would be able to handle it physically. I think I would be able to handle it, but I'm sure I won't have a chance to find out again. No, well, not at 149, not no in this chance. day and age. I, I wouldn't think so. You just so. stay away from the walks then. Yeah, that's, that's exactly <laughs> it. And, uh, I mean, I put myself in situations where the probability of me throwing a no-hitter, <laughs> they were way, 
way gone. You know, it probably shouldn't have happened, but I'm glad it did. That's, that's a great story. Yeah, you've also won a ring. What was that like? Tell us about about that year and, and particularly that postseason. Mm, that's what you play for in baseball. I mean, that year, numerically, we had no shot. Numerically, we weren't supposed to even make the playoffs. And, you know, we end up finishing hard down the stretch. I remember um, La Russa had a meeting with the team, and he was like, you know, we're in this situation. He was like, just win every series. We don't have to try to win every game. Let's just win every series from here on out. And... It seems like everyone started clicking at the right time, and Atlanta kept losing, and we kept winning, and we found ourselves in Chris Carpenter going against Houston to win a game, and we needed an Atlanta loss to make it into the wild card. And I remember sitting in the clubhouse in Houston watching that game, and when it was over, everyone just going crazy, you know, that we were going going to the playoffs. And I feel like from then, everyone clicked, and everyone shined, and, you know, we're the last man standing on the field. No better feeling. Oh, it must have been great. It was definitely great. Oh, my gosh. Um, so you're still doing this after 15 years. You've obviously had a couple of nice contracts. So I think some people would look at it and go, why are you still doing this? What, what, what's your answer when people wonder why you're, you know, signing a minor league contract and, and starting the season in the minors and, and waiting for your time to get back here? It's for the love of the game. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm not playing for the money at this point. I mean, it's, it's nice to get paid to play. Don't get me wrong. But... I'm doing this, it's all for the love of the game. It's nothing that I have to do. As a matter of fact, my wife, she she asks me every day, like, how long are you going to play? You're going to try to play till you're 40. You're going to try to be like LaTroy and just keep playing forever. But um, honestly, I like to go out. I like to compete. I like to have fun. Um, this is a hard game that we play. It's going to be a lot of ups and a lot of downs, but you have to learn how to smile at failure sometimes. And it's not as easy as it seems, but... If you take the game too serious, it'll definitely eat you alive. I mean, it's one of the few games, maybe the only game where failure is success. It's not too many games that people can play where if you fail, you succeed. And this is one of the tougher games in sports that you play. And it's going to be times where things are just not going to work. You're going to feel great and, and everything is just going to go wrong. And there's going to be times where you don't feel great and everything goes right. I mean, when they say it's a game of inches, that's a true story. But I play for the love of the game. I play for the fun to be able to go out and compete at the highest level and, you know, have fun and teach some lessons along the way and continue to learn while I'm teaching. What do you think of this Oakland team? Because it's obviously got this good young core of players. You've seen what the offense can do here this first couple of days in Detroit. What do you think about, um, you know, maybe the ceiling for this team and now you're here and part of it? I think this team has potential to do some great things. The, um, the ceiling for this team is high. It's, um, you watch the way they play games. And I haven't been here all year, but I've seen some games on TV and you know, the tenacity of the team, the grind of the team, um, the feeling in the dugout that you're never out of a game, even if you're down four runs. Those are championship qualities. You know, I've been on bad teams. I've been on good teams. And the team, the way this team carries itself, it carries itself like a winning organization. And they know how to win. And it's, it's only a matter of time before it starts happening. Now, you, you told me that your first day in that um, you, you think down the line you might want to get a jersey that has all the logos of all the teams you've played for. How, how do you envision that? How's that going to look? And also, where can I get one once you find it? How's it going to look? I'm not sure. It's going to look pretty colorful, though. It's going to be very colorful. <laughs> it's going to be bright. But uh, I don't know. Maybe have some more teams to add to that. Who knows? But when I'm done, I think it'll be a, it'll be a good gift to get myself you know something to laugh at and 
look at all the teams that I've played for and, and bring back all the memories that I've had and all the teams and the good times, the bad times, the funny stories, and, you know, kind of just sit back and reflect on my career in baseball. Yeah, that, that would be pretty great. I, um, Octavio Dotel, I talked to him on the phone the other day about tying, you tied his record with 13 teams. I know he's, he was a teammate of yours, and he said, the first thing he said was, man, I wanted that one for myself. I wanted to be alone in that department. But then he said, like, you know, like, okay, well, Edwin's earned it, and, you know, we're teammates, we're friends, so it's okay. But he says he thinks, because you're only, he's like, how old is he? And I said, he's 34. He's like, 30 he's got lots of room to break it so I mean I think Ace fans at this point you know after your first start are thinking maybe you could just stay here I hope so um, you know I, I, I know it's hard you know in this game of baseball but I'm having fun and Dotel is, is a great friend of mine he's a funny character and um, you know if, if anybody to have that record and to be a people's person I feel like it'll be cool for me to own that record and, and have similar qualities and traits um, as he has and you know we're kind of the same people we're both friendly we both get along with everybody kind of the life life of the clubhouse but exactly. you know I plan on coming on and um, you know continue taking it one game at a time and you know letting these boys play defense and you know let them hit and try to keep them in the dugout with the bats in their hands. Perfect. You know what um, Bob Melvin said the other day after your start, you exactly what this team needed, and I think that it looks like that might be the case. Thanks so, so much for joining us on Ace Plus. No problem. Glad, glad to be here. Welcome back to the A's Plus podcast. Our guest is Ryan Christensen, the A's bench coach. Um, Rhino, I've wanted to talk to you uh, for most of the season to find out how you're settling in as bench coach. It's your first season as bench coach, but especially this last couple of days, because I all season I had thought that the beautiful calligraphy on A's lineups that we see all over the place was different people. And I've learned, because you've got different styles, and I've learned... <laughs> just on this road trip, that it's all you. When, when did you start doing this with a beautiful penmanship? I think it kind of all stems back to when I was a kid. My, my grandmother actually gave me a calligraphy pen set when I was really little, and it actually had stayed around the house forever. I'd kind of one of those things where I'd pick it up and do a little bit of it, then I'd put it down for a few years and come back to it. And as I got back into baseball and I was making lineup cards, I had got a calligraphy pen and did it. And kind of got a little response from the players and so I did it again and one of those things maybe were superstitious if you go on a winning streak I'd kept doing it so I've always kind of had an affinity for different fonts and uh, they call it typography and just handwritten stuff so I have an appreciation for that and go around to restaurants and see what they do up on the chalkboards and so I've always kind of had an eye and looked out for it and tattoos and that kind of font tattoo uh, art and the whole nine. Uh, do you have a favorite font? You, you seem like you have a lot of um, sort of very gothic-looking things and things that look look like runes almost. Um, pretty trippy. Yeah, I think uh, the the old English fonts always appealing to my eye. The the Roman Italian uh, font. Um, some of uh, like a Celtic style. I think I've always looked at as well. But uh, I've always, like I said, I've always liked the the calligraphy font. I mean uh, the the tattoo font. Uh, looked the other day. I think what you were talking to was supposed to be like a graffiti type looking letter. Nice. So. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, I understand you also um, do like sort of bat logos with um, with a wood burning. Is it a wood burning pen? Explain that. So a few years ago, I guess it was a Midland. Uh, I told Waz that I th I thought I could burn this uh like just maybe started with a name into a bat or uh even artwork on it so i made this whole bat and it was kind of like um almost like a totem pole it had this this uh this art it's called zentangle on there and it's a little bit uh kind of gets my mind away from it uh it's something that that i always tell the players after i was done with this whole bat 
and they were looking at it. I said it was kind of like a, uh, a little bit of their career at the same time. You know, you take a little bit of time, just take your time to do something as perfect as you can. might take a long time, but over time you got something that's a, that's a masterpiece. It's a work of art. So I thought that that was kind of uh, what they go through on their day-to-day operations. You pay attention to the details every single day. doesn't have to be a great improvement, but just pay attention to the, the day and get a little bit better with perfection each day. And at the end of a month or end of the year, you're significantly better and you had a work of art or you know you, you're getting closer to where you want to be so i took that and then uh i've done probably six or seven of them now and each one has kind of advanced a little bit and i, I had done them for i guess i did one for myself one for john was and one for brian mccarn there in midland and then ricky henderson was in town and he saw him and he was like well i want one of those and i think he was just joking around but that off season i made him one and I presented it to him two spring trainings ago, and he was just floored. He was like, oh, my gosh. He's like, I can't believe you remember, remember this, first of all, and I can't believe you took so much time to make this thing for me. So it was cool to see his reaction. And then uh, about three days later, he came in, and he presented me with a bass. Like, uh, he came in, and he had, had these notes on it, and he took his time to write down all of his records in different quadrants of the wow. bass, and he signed it, and he gave it to me. And uh, it was just a nice gesture by him and a great memento for me to have in my house. Oh, that's amazing. A bass from the all-time stolen yeah. bass leader is pretty incredible it that's was. amazing what, what did you do for his bat was there anything um, particular special you did with it well I knew a little bit about him I knew obviously he's grew, grew, grew up in Oakland so on the top I had the Oakland skyline um, I did the the kind of the iconic picture of him the one that's actually on the wall of him running and I put that on there uh, I put a cheetah on there I know he likes to fish so I did a silhouette of a guy fly fishing in a river and then a big mouth bass on there um, I put. I knew he was a Muhammad Ali fan, also, so I put a, a kind of a drawing of Muhammad Ali on the bat, and a saying that I knew I was the greatest. No, I said I was the greatest before I even knew I was, or something like that, and uh, and I gave it to him. That's amazing. Do you do other kinds of art? Not too much. Like I said, I've always just been a doodler. Um, I love the the typography with the fonts of the letters. That's that's always appealed to my eye. I took a trip to the when we were in New York. I went to the Met. Uh, really enjoyed walking around that museum. So I, I'm not a connoisseur of art by any means, and I don't proclaim to be a great artist. But like I said, I just I think uh, I've always had the ability to to copy stuff. So even when I draw stuff or put it on the the bat, it's not like I'm freehanding, and I kind of do it by a grid, or I'll put a graph on there and, and draw it little box by box because I've always I think symmetry is always something that I that I like to my eye. So it's something that's symmetrical and and looks cool like that is what I do. Oh, what a great talent. Now, um, this is your first year as bench coach after, uh, of course, managing throughout every level of the A's minor league system. How are you finding the new job and being doing it at the big league level? Well, it's been a very entertaining experience for me this year. First of all, just to continue to be around this group of players. I've, for the last five years in the minor leagues, being around these players, they're such a joy to be around, uh, to watch them work every day. They're great people. They're easy to get along with. Um, they got a great love of the game. Their work ethic is off the chart. And then uh, to just watch them play the game over the last few years, I've really enjoyed it. So to continue to watch them do it, do it here at the big league level, to watch them have success, to watch them establish themselves as big league players has uh, been a great thrill for me. Um, to have the opportunity to, to work under Bob and just, just watch how he prepares for the game, how he's so far ahead of every move that's getting ready to happen has been uh, very eye-opening. And then not only that, I mean, you got somebody like Matt Williams who's managed in the, in the clubhouse and then the coach his room Darren Bush I respect as a baseball man he's managed and he's got a great eye for the game so I'm just I'm just like a sponge I try to pick up as many things as I can and uh, to, to have an opportunity though to be under a manager and watch him work and operate has really been probably the the greatest blessing this year and what are the biggest challenges of the job uh, I don't know if there's I mean 
if there's any challenges, I think just trying to, to, to have the answers for when Bob might pose a question for me is something that, uh, that I'll grind on throughout the game. And I mean, mind is always spinning. I think sometimes, uh, I guess a challenge would be to get a little lost in all the numbers. And then, uh, all of a sudden the situation comes up and it starts to speed up in the game where, you know, you just, just keep it simple, have the numbers that you, that, that I know Bob, that Bob likes and appreciates that the organization values and stick with that. But, uh, you can get swallowed up and then go down so many different rows with trying to analyze all the numbers and it can become a little overwhelming at times. Now you of course played for the A's. What's it like now being back sort of going around the American League as a coach? Uh, it's been great. I mean coming back to the A's was like a, a, a blast from the past. I remember when I first interviewed with uh, with Keith Lippman back in 2012 offseason and he brought me into instructional league when we were still there at Papago and I walked into the same door that I'd walked in for years as a player and Ted Polakowski was still sitting there at his desk. Jesse Sotomayor was there. Some of the same trainers. I walked down the hallway, see Grady, uh, Greg Sparks and Lip and it was just uh, just one never ready. I mean just so many same of the same people there. And then, uh, then even this year, getting up to Oakland, or actually I noticed that uh, the last couple of years when I came up for a couple of series to, to join the team after our minor league season was over, I mean, it's just almost like the same security guards at every single post there at the Coliseum. Obviously, Voos is an institution, Brian, Cliffy, and Matt. So just the same people. Um, obviously, Billy and David are still there. Dan Feinstein was around. So it's just so comfortable for me to be back around that same group of people and uh, and just the continuity and everybody just I, I know where everybody stands. I know the philosophy of the organization. So it was a good fit for me and uh, just a, a great opportunity to start my coaching career back with Oakland. Awesome. It's wonderful to have you back. Thanks for joining us on Ace Plus. All right. Thanks for having me. Susan. It's time for the Slus Plus portion of the Ace Plus podcast. I think maybe Dave Feldman, we should start calling it Slus Plus Feldman because that's really what it's it's turned into. Um, we always enjoy having Dave Feldman, official scorer and stats guru, here with us. Uh, Dave, we've got an interesting week to talk about again. The A's have played very well on this 10-game road trip. Uh, what do you make from afar about what the uh, A's have been doing here and going five games over 500? It's very exciting. You know, teams build that elusive chemistry and winning ways on the road. I'm, I'm sure of that. I've seen it so many times. That teams who go on the road, especially long road trips, and win, it just builds this closeness and togetherness and also a little of the uh, us-against-the-world attitude. Uh, and this is the second long road trip where they're going to come away with at least seven wins. Uh, New York, Boston, Toronto, back in May, and now this one. This is, this is all good signs to a team building. And, and really, again, and I brought this up last week, it reminds me again of 2012. Here was a team that kind of struggled for the first two and a half months, wasn't really sure of their identity, but then caught fire, and it started on a road trip to Colorado. And I just, I just starting to see these similarities to that team, the way they're playing, not the way the team's built, but the way they're playing to this team. Yeah, it's funny. Chris Townsend brought up the 2012 team, too. I can kind of see this team doesn't maybe quite have some of the superstar power that that team eventually wound up showing that it had. But uh, it's a nice group that seems to play well together. Uh, the the absolute strange splits between home and road, though. It's now 72 homers on the road, 36 at home. What I mean, That's extraordinary. What, what do you make of that? I wish put a finger on it there's there's no way to uh, they just they do not hit they're not the same offensive team at home uh, they're hitting 18 points lower 
Uh, you know, they're slugging 20 points lower. It's just they're just not the same team, and it's not all the Coliseum. I, you can't blame that. It's just they play differently. Now they've also played Houston, which is a problem. Uh, Houston seems to destroy them and takes all the offensive numbers down. So <laughs> that's one of the issues. Um, but I, you really can't put your finger on it, except for the fact that the togetherness they have on the road, where they feel like they're up against the world. Maybe it just carries over on the road better than it does at home. Yeah, you know the the home road thing to me is so interesting because they're they're, they're at 500 at home, so. Whatever's going on offensively at the Coliseum seems to be impacting both teams. You know, it's not like they're way under 500 at the Coliseum. You'd like to have a, a winning record at home. Of course, every team would like to have that. Um, but scoring two, almost two runs a game less at home is, is really baffling. Uh, maybe as the weather warms up, we will see a little bit of a different Oakland A's team at home. What do you think about that? I think it's always possible. The ball does tend to travel a little bit better. Um, but you're right about you're a 500 team at home. You're pitching better at home than you do on the road. Your ERA is almost a whole run lower at home. You're not giving up the home runs at home. So maybe the, you know, the whole park effect is, is bigger than I'm willing to admit <laughs> that maybe it is just it's slowing down off. It's a Coliseum in the first two months, first two and a half months, it's slowed down offense at a great rate. Now, just in general, before before the season started, I would have said, you know, maybe a 500 finish for a very young team that's finished in last place three years in a row would be a really good goal. The fact that they are five games over at the midpoint of the season, is that, are they overperforming in your eyes, or, or is this the team maybe that they are? I think they're overachieving a bit, especially with all the pitching injuries. I think if you told me, hey, the A's are going to, in the first 81 game, these 12 different starters, how's that going to go? I'm going to tell you, that's not going to go very well. Um, I thought the offense was kind of doing what I thought it would do, at least what it was capable of as they built it. Um, but not with the the number of starting pitching injuries, starting in spring trading with Puck and Cotton, which is kind of like, oh, no, this, this, this is a bad omen. And then following through in the season. They've overcome that. And they've overcome that with, with a good offense, playing well on the road, and, and a bullpen that's been able to piece together games. Um, and I think you had a note in your story that, you know, the A's have the lead after seven innings. They don't lose. Um, and that, again, a huge thing for young teams that when they're in a position to win games, they win those games. And that just builds on itself. So, yeah, I think you look at this halfway point, five games over, I think they're overachieving uh, in a good way. Yeah, that's one of the reasons we've talked about this, I think, each of the last two weeks. One of the reasons maybe you don't trade Blake Trinan unless you get an absurd haul for him because that back end of the bullpen has been so important for the A's and so nails. If they want to do anything, not just this year, but beyond, Trinan's really maybe a guy that they might want to hold on to. I know that the feeling in baseball is that relievers, you can, anybody can close and you don't know what you're going to get from year to year. I, you know, I, he, he seems like he's got something special going on with this team and they might want to, you know, at least for the sake of the young guys, at least through this year, hang on to him. Uh, I, I agree 100%. And again, because he, he, he's cost-effective, you just don't spend huge dollars on closers. You're not going to have to with Blake Trine, and as he's heading into these arbitration years, it's not huge numbers. Yes, he's going to get a raise, and he's going to deserve it. But there's no reason to not, unless you get blown away, to trade him away. Because it's just, again, what we're seeing now with Trevino and Trinan as your eighth, ninth inning guys, this has become a lockdown bullpen. 
And you know, let me date myself here and talk about the early, the late 70s with the Yankees, the Ron Davis and Goose Gossage. That was a lockdown city. Uh, you didn't want to face those two guys, two hard throwers. That's what you're seeing here. Absolutely. Um, how do you see things the rest of the way? I mean, is this, especially without Matt Chapman, uh, when he comes back, this team sort of seems like they're starting to feel good about themselves, get some confidence, but they really struggle in the division, particularly against Houston. Is that something that they need to get past? Is that something they need to show that they can do? They do. They do. And this, again, I, we brought this up last week, and this road trip coming up before the All-Star break. So they come home, they have Cleveland for three, San Diego for two. Hopefully they can take care of business, win both those series, hopefully sweep the Padres. But then they go on the road, they play at Cleveland, four at Houston, and three at San Francisco. I, I still believe this is going to determine the direction for the rest of the season. If they're able on that road trip, especially in Houston, to even win two games, flip that series, and put themselves in a position where they're still the next team out in the wild card, if you look at it now as we talk on Thursday morning, that there's only Seattle in front of them, right? The number two wild card team. There's not three or four teams they have to jump over. There's just they, – they, they see who they're competing against, and it's only seven games. And they picked up four games in the last week. They have nine games left for Seattle. Seattle's won a ton of one-run games, which, is, again, some people will say is more lucky than good. So maybe that comes back to, back to earth in their one-run record. So the A's can see that. But if they go on that road trip and they somehow lay a bomb and they find themselves again 12, 13 games out of the wild card spot, two other teams in front of them, I think it changes the direction. So having to win in Houston, that is, to me, that's going to determine if they're really a contender in this season. Yeah, I, I hate to switch topics too much from the A's, but what do you make of Seattle? I, you know, I'm married to a Mariners fan, so I'm well aware of their, their recent history, you know, not making the playoffs since 2001. It seems like each of the last few years they've had gone on an extraordinary run at some point. They've had a month, month and a half where they just can't lose, and then they fall back to earth. Is this Seattle team one that you see that will be maybe um, similar to those, or is there something different this year? There's something a little different this year, and I and I and I think the Robinson Cano injury has actually helped them. Uh, talking to people who have been around that team, they say there's definitely a, a bit of a different vibe. Also, you lose a, an all-star, almost Hall of Fame caliber second baseman, but you have to replace him with another all-star in D. Gordon. That worked out really well for them. That's amazing. Um, they, you know, 25 and 11 in one-run games. So. 25 wins, yeah. 36 one-run games <laughs> in their first 81 games. I mean, at some point, they, the expert will tell you, it will come back to the mean, and those games will catch up with you. So it will be interesting as they go into the second half, but, you know, Gene Segura has been having a really nice season. The trade for Denard's span so far is working out. He was something that they needed, especially with Pete Gordon moving to second base. Um, you know, Mitch Haniger having a nice year. Nelson Cruz doing what he does. I think offensively they're fine. Pitching will be the issue with them. Um, you know, Paxson has been has been very good, but a little inconsistent as well. There have been some outings where he's been terrible. I don't think a rotation with Wade LeBlanc in it is is is, is a really good formula for winning. Um, Mike Leak tends to have bad second half, so they're a big question mark. I think they can come back to the pack again because I think they are overachieving. They're well overachieving. Um, so I see them, I see them coming back. 
Con conversely, if the A's get some better health in the rotation, which is a massive if, of course, uh, are they a team that actually might even be capable of a little more? I mean, this has been a patchwork rotation for a long time, and they, they're getting remarkably good fill-ins, spot starts, things like that, um, guys contributing who uh, really you, you never would have expected to. I don't know how long that can go on, but, you know, if they get Trevor Cahill back, Brett Anderson back, um, maybe a little bit more normalcy, Mengden at some point, Triggs, uh, are they capable of more, maybe, even than what we're seeing? Yeah, consistency of the starting rotation will will is much better for a formula of success, right? If you know every five days who's going out there. You know, there's only two teams so far this, this season who have run the same five starters out uh, the entire year. One, Houston Astros. Not a surprise, right? They have an all-star caliber five-man rotation. The other team is the Colorado Rockies run out the same five guys, and that shocked me. But everybody else, they're dealing with multiple pitchers. The A's to, a, to an extreme extent. I think Trevor Cahill coming back, and if he pitches as well as he was, into a 2.7 ERA, um, he can really solidify this rotation. Because Manaya's been very good. Montasi has a bad start in Detroit, but he was due for that. It's not much of a concern. Um, you know, we'll see what Edwin Jackson does going forward. Uh, even how long he stays in the rotation, who knows? But that was a nice, nice beginning for sure. But having five starters that you know can go out there, take the ball, get you hopefully into the sixth, seventh inning um, in the ball game, you can really improve. And again, as we go past the All Star break and we see what the A's do, and if there's other options to add to that rotation, it's going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah, let's finish up with um, talking a little bit more about Edwin Jackson. Um, I don't know how much you saw of the start, but uh, going six innings and allowing one run, uh, having not pitched in the majors all year, playing in the minors first with Washington and then, of course, with Oakland after opting out of his Nationals contract, uh, his 13th major league team, his 15th season, uh, it's a great story. But is he a guy who you think maybe can continue to perform well? He's certainly got the experience, which is, you know, with a team with, that's very young, has a lot of young starting pitchers, just having a veteran presence, I think, is, is a plus if, if he's pitching adequately. Yeah, if he's pitching out adequately. You know, you talk about all that experience, right, you know, and all these teams and all these years, and he's 34 years old. He seems like he should be 44 years old, right? <laughs> you sure? I mean... It's unbelievable. This guy came up in 2003 with the Dodgers uh, as a 20-year-old. Um, last year with Washington, this is a playoff team. Uh, he made 13 starts. He had an ERA of five. Um, as he goes along and you look at his past few seasons, that's kind of what he pitches to. Um, he has some very good starts, and then he has some starts where he gets knocked out really early. Um, I think that's what you have to expect from him. I don't think what you saw against Detroit, he's going to give you every time out. I think he's capable of doing it every once in a while. He's capable of keeping you in games, and he's capable of getting knocked out in the first inning. It's just been his history over the last few years. I think you could go with him as long as he's, you know, give him the next start. Let's see what happens. But I don't know how much faith you put in that he's going to be any better, really, than, than Brett Anderson. Now, Brett Anderson can't stay healthy, and that's really his issue. But even when he is healthy, you know, good starts, bad starts. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's going to be much different than that. I really love the way he worked with Lucroy, who knows him very well from having faced him a lot over the years. That seemed like they had a, a good rapport. Uh, Lucroy knows what makes him effective. 
you know, you kind of hope maybe that, that that's the, the sort of thing that maybe helps Jackson be better than average. Um, but it, that's going to be interesting to see. It's a great story, so I, I kind of hope that, uh, you know, he sticks around for at least a little while. Plus, he's a great talker. You know we love that. Um, so uh, from, <laughs> from a reporter's perspective, a very nice addition. As always, David Feldman, thank you so much for joining us on A's Plus, and we will talk again very soon. This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is The Third by Anatech, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. The show is produced by me and Fernando Diaz. For more A's coverage, you can follow me on Twitter, at Susan Slusser. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com. <laughs>